the final fight. That's part of the discussion in this week's episode of Legendary Adventures Podcast. Ganon is waiting inside his tower to pass through the gate linking the two worlds. Once Ganon enters the light world, it's unlikely that anyone can stop him. But if he stays in the closed space of this world, you can find him wherever he runs. Ganon's tower is located just west of Turtle Rock on the top of Death Mountain. But before going there, there's a few last things we want to take care of before moving to the final section of the game. By this point, players have most likely noticed a large crack in the wall of the Great Pyramid in the center of the Dark World, but the standard blue bombs that are part of Link's arsenal have no effect on it. There's also a chance they've wandered into the equivalent of Link's house in the Dark World and discovered that it's a bomb shop. At first it only sells the standard bombs, but there's space for something else, and the shopkeeper does tell players that it's working on something special. After making enough progress in the game, a super bomb appears for sale. I was not sure what the triggers were, but according to the wiki on ZeldaDungeon.net, players need to complete both the Ice Palace and Misery Mire to make the bomb appear. It costs 100 rupees. The large red bomb follows Link and it can be placed with the A button. This bomb will blow a hole in the wall of the Great Pyramid. Inside is a second mysterious pond. Link can toss his bow and arrow and sword to get upgrades. Instead of Venus, Queen of the Fairies, a cursed fairy appears. This one is extremely large, and she says she's been cursed by Ganon's magic. For being honest about dropping the bow, players will get an upgrade to Silver Arrows. As with the original game, these are required to take out Ganon. Players can also get an upgraded sword. It's not required, but it will make Ganon's tower more manageable. Returning to the top of Death Mountain in the Dark World, we can now enter Ganon's tower. After approaching the tower, the Maidens use their power to open it. Ganon's tower spans eight floors. There are seven above-ground floors and one basement level. As with the Tower of Hera, players enter on the second floor. Much of this dungeon will be an intense gauntlet of enemies and traps. The lower floors, however, contain a twisting maze of passages and optional rooms that first must be navigated. Upon first entering the dungeon, players will encounter three doors. One on the west, one in the center, and one on the east. Players must first head down to the lower levels to round up the big key, the dungeon map, the compass, and the dungeon item. Players can take either the east or the west door for a slightly different path through the lower levels. I took the door on the west. The first floor is the largest and most navigationally complex floor of the dungeon. The first room contains a key that needed to be knocked off a tall torch and three doors. A door to the south is closed with a shutter. A door to the east is locked, but the door to the west is open. I went west. I had to use a hammer to knock down some pegs and push a block to advance through a room, and use the hookshock to cross another room to reach the map. It's inside a chest protected by two fire bars. A room to the south features a pair of crystal switches side by side. This room is notable because players need to use a bomb to change the switch to advance but they need to position the bomb far enough away so that the explosion only touches one switch. Players can then move through a locked door to the east. In the next room, there's a row of bouncing spike traps inside the barrier of a crystal switch. Players need to lower the barrier, 
dodge the traps, and then step through a portal that transports them to the northwest portion of the dungeon. The room we warp to features a fairly simple maze of blocks, with snake-like fire traps moving through the passageways. There's a lone block on the west side of the room that must be pushed to reveal a chest. Players can then use the hookshot to grab onto that chest, cross over a hole, and claim a key to a door to the south. The door to the south leads to a maze of portals. Players must pass through multiple portals to find their way forward in the dungeon. The correct path involves taking a portal to the east, then west, then a portal to the southwest. Players will then navigate across a room filled with holes to reach a portal in the northeast, which will take them to a small enclosure with a single portal, which then allows them to reach the door. The next room seems to feature an incredibly large and passable hole, but enemies seem to float in the air and gives us a hint that something is up. A torch can be lit to reveal an invisible path. Players need to move fast across it. If players know what they're doing, they can strategically lift a skull across from the torch to allow them to hookshot to another skull, gaining quick access to the invisible path. Otherwise, they must run around. If the torch goes out before they've crossed, the ether medallion can be used to briefly reveal the path. The next room has cracked floors. A bomb can be placed on the cracks in the southeast alcove to create a hole. Players then fall into the hole for a rematch with the very first boss in the game, the Armos Knights. We've seen repeated boss fights are a common element throughout the Zelda games. There were frequent repeat fights in the first game. Zelda 2 featured only two rematches against Rebenak in the Hidden Palace. The first three bosses will appear in this dungeon. The Armos Knights fall in a single shot with the Silver Arrow. However, there's a twist that makes this fight slightly harder than the first time we faced it. The floor is now covered in ice, making it slippery. Still, the Knights won't pose much of a challenge now that Link has expanded his arsenal. A room north of the boss room holds the big key and bombs. We then head west back to the first floor to find the big chest. It contains red mail, meaning less damage is taken. Heading north loops players back to the entrance of this floor, and moving back to the second floor, we can then head through the central door to move up to the third floor and the second segment of this dungeon. When writing these episodes, I generally try to focus on the elements that stand out for me, just the highlights, and not give an exhaustive step-by-step -step playthrough. I don't always succeed with that, I just did a pretty detailed recount of how to get through the first segment of this dungeon, but with the second half, I really think we can just hit the highlights. The second room beyond the big key door features a row of moving cannons that shoot bubbles over a narrow bridge. Players have to cross it the best they can without getting hit. At the far end of the bridge, there's a pair of blocks and a bob of a wall just over a gap in the floor. I learned from others that the intended way to reach this room is to use the Pegasus boots to dash into the blocks and then bounce over the gap. This same technique can also be used to enter Misery Mire. I reached this room for my first time ever on this playthrough for this podcast. The room is entirely optional, you don't have to visit it at all on the playthrough, but I was happy to be able to reach it. After passing through a series of enemy gauntlets, we'll reach a room that contains a rematch with the second boss of the game, the Molas from the Desert Palace. There's now a block with a face on it that spits fireballs at the players for some extra challenge, but for the most part, this fight plays out as it did the first time. Up one floor, we find a room with a large hole and whiz robes which seem to float in the air when they appear. We know from the past room there's actually a hidden pathway here, but this time there's no torch, so players must use the ether medallion to defeat the whiz robes and get a glimpse at the path. A few rooms later, we'll come across two rooms that put an interesting spin on torch lighting puzzles. One has a narrow cross-shaped floor over a hole. There's a fire bar in the center of the room which forces players to work their way around it clockwise. Players will want to go around twice, first to lift skulls which block the torches, and then to go back around to light the torches. A second torch lighting room has a couple of holes in the floor and the outer edge falls away, forcing players to move fast to light the torches and open the door. After passing through a few more rooms, we'll have a rematch with Moldorm. 
The arena here is wider and wing-shaped with notches cutting out of the top and bottom, but it's much easier than it was the first time around. Moldorm fell in only two hits for me, and the hookshot is needed to grapple across a hole allowing Link to exit the room. Now let's get to the main boss of the tower. It's another rematch fight from the first act of the game, Aghanim. This time the wizard creates two duplicates which shoot magic at Link. Tracking the real Aghanim is simple. His shadow is darker than either of the two duplicates. After a good old-fashioned match of Dead Man's Folly, Aghanim falls. When he does, the spirit of Ganon rises from his body and turns into a bat. It flies across the dark world and crashes through the roof of the Great Pyramid, creating a hole. Link uses his flute and somehow summons the bird from the light world to travel to the pyramid. Once there, players have a choice on whether they want to fight Ganon right away, or take some time to recover, restock, and even save. This respite before the final battle is a welcome change from the first two games, where players were forced to go through a difficult gauntlet of a dungeon and then take on the final boss right away. Not being thrown directly into the fight allows players to take a breather, and more importantly, a chance to round up necessary gear to take on Ganon if they haven't done so yet. So if for some reason the player doesn't have the silver arrows, they can take the time now to get them. Not every game in the series offers a pause before the final boss, but a few will follow the lead of A Link to the Past. Before the fight with Ganon, he speaks to Link. He says, I never imagined a boy like you could give me so much trouble. It's unbelievable that you could have defeated my alter ego, Aghanim, the Dark Wizard, twice. That's right, it seems Aghanim is just Ganon all along or at least part of him. I'm unable to find an official source that confirms this or even a source that I fully trust, but there are several commentators on Reddit and other forums who claim that the original Japanese text is more akin to copy, suggesting that Aghanim's a lesser duplicate of Ganon, containing only part of his essence. If that is accurate, it would make this the first example of a concept that'll appear in multiple Zelda games. As we go through the series, we'll meet a number of phantom Ganons, copies of the Dark Lord who commonly engage Link in a good old-fashioned match of Dead Man's Volley. The fight with Ganon himself plays out in three phases. He's armed with a trident this time. In the first phase, he'll spin his trident around and throw it. It will boomerang back to him. After a few hits in this phase, Ganon will begin to use fire attacks. The fire is shaped like a bat. There are a couple variations of these fire bats. After a few hits, Ganon will begin stomping the ground, causing the outer edge of the floor to fall away. Players can be knocked down to a lower floor where they'll be forced to exit the pyramid and start the fight over again. The fight will briefly pause at the start of the third phase. Ganon announces he's going to use his special technique of darkness. Two torches on the southern end of the battle arena will extinguish. It's a callback to the original game. When the torches go out, Ganon becomes invisible. Players will need to relight the torches to make Ganon appear again, then land a hit on him with the sword. Ganon will turn blue and when he is blue, players must hit him with a silver arrow to deal damage. Again, this is all echoing the first game, but this time Ganon doesn't fall in a single hit. Four arrows are required to defeat the Dark Lord. After Ganon falls, Link claims the Triforce and uses his wish to restore everything to how they were. The king lives again, as does his uncle. We see happy endings all around, and the master sword, we're told, sleeps forever. Now that statement isn't really true. 
As we will see, the series will go on and the Master Sword will be drawn and used in battle many times. Next week, we'll take a look at the world of A Link to the Past and its legacy. Please subscribe if you want to follow along. Please also consider sharing this podcast with another Zelda fan. I am Paul Riley. Thanks for listening.